This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Welcome to Amplify, the Australian Museum's regular podcast where I get to chat to some of the extraordinary scientists and staff as well as visitors to the Australian Museum and take a peek sneak behind the scenes. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO, and welcome again to Amplify. Well, today's guest is somebody who is one of my favourite people, one of my favourite Australians, an explorer, scientist, communicator, and of course the 2007 Australian of the Year. And of course, he worked here at the Australian Museum for around 15 years as the curator of mammalian the Mammalian Collection, and I'm talking about, of course, the wonderful Tim Flannery. Welcome, Tim. Thanks very much, Kim. It's great to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you here on site, and I'm glad that we see more of you these days than before, that when you're not focusing on some of your climate change activities, you do come into the Australian Museum frequently. Well, I do. The place is going places now, and it's a very exciting place to be engaged with. So um, I love, love being here. It's a second home for me, you know, really in many ways. And uh, it's a great platform as well from which to undertake, I think, important projects. And that's why you're here. And we're going to talk about that project in a moment about the Solomon Islands. But first, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into Tim Flannery. Most Australians probably feel they know you. They know you because of your extraordinary climate change awareness work and your commitment and passion for that issue and really putting it on the agenda in this country. But, of course, people probably forget that you did so much scientific work on discovering new species in this region during your days here. So I want to take you right back. When you were a little Tim Flannery, I think you grew up in Melbourne, didn't you? That's right, I did. Uh, And I left Melbourne, I must have been about... uh, 24 or 25, I think, when I came up to Sydney. So where did you study at? I was I studied at La Trobe University, and my first degree was in English and history, believe it or not. Well, I guess that comes out when I read all those books you've written, yeah? I'm glad I did it. I loved, yeah. I loved it, I yeah. must say. But uh, when I realised that I really had to do science, it meant I had to take a couple of steps back, go to Monash and uh, enrol in a master's prelim, it was called back then, like an honours year in geology. So... I was doing a lot of catch-up geology courses before I wrote my master's thesis. And at the end of that, thank heavens, I uh, was accepted at the University of New South Wales to do a PhD in zoology. Fantastic. But back when you were at school in Melbourne, I remember you telling me about how you'd get a tram in on your own and go to visit the Melbourne Museum. Yeah, I used to. It was amazing. The Melbourne Museum back then was on Russell Street, and it was this enormous monumental entrance to, you know, a grand building that only the extraordinary wealth in gold that Melbourne had could have built. You know. Yeah, I know. Those Mel- grand Melbourne buildings are extraordinary, aren't they? I mean, Sydney has its lovely Sydney sandstone, but boy, you just realise how wealthy that state was back then. It was extraordinary. And the collection told the same story. You know, if they wanted to buy Alfred Russell Wallace's collection of orangutans, they damn well did it. They had the money to do it. You know, if they wanted to buy, you know, the biggest and best of anything, they went out and did it. And um, so I I remember arriving at that museum as a small boy. My parents had taken me there earlier and I still remember, I must have been about three, I think, and the thing that stuck in my mind from that early visit was a pair of hobnail boots from the Gold Rush, which must have been in the technology section. For some reason, I remember that, and an Aboriginal skeleton. 
But when I was about nine, I went in eight or nine, I went into the museum with a fossil that I wanted to have identified. And uh, I remember the guards, rather stern looking guards, looked at me as I came through that monumental entrance that would have fitted a blue whale through it, you know. And um, they called someone from upstairs, and at length, after I was sitting there like a little kid in the corner, my shorts... Um, you were a little kid in I the was, corner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this guy in a white coat appeared. Yeah. And uh, he took me up this great flight of stairs. It was extraordinary, behind the scenes, a monumental staircase, into this huge hall, which was darkened, because it was the, the exhibition had been closed. Mm. There was an Egyptian mummy in the corner I walked past. There was skeletons. It was being used as a storage area, but... To a kid, it was like a, I don't know, Aladdin's cave. It was incredible. Anyway, he took me all the way through there into the museum collection where the fossils were, pulled open a drawer and showed me a fossil which was like my one and he identified it. And then he said... What was it? It was a little sea urchin, just a very simple, right, common okay. fossil. But uh, he said... He looked at me and said, I'll bet you're interested in dinosaurs. And I said, yeah. <laughs> what kid isn't? Exactly. So he, there was only one dinosaur bone ever found in Victoria at that Point. It was called the Cape Patterson Claw. So he went to another cabinet, opened it up, pulled out this Cape Patterson Claw that I'd heard about as this mythological mm. thing, put it in my hand. So it was like, I'll never wash his hand again. Yeah. This is amazing, you know. So I remember leaving the museum, kind of floating back down down Russell Street to get the train home. Um, and I've wondered ever since who that fellow in the white coat was. He might have been the cleaner at the museum for <laughs> I know, but whoever he was, he did me a great favour. Well, I think that's a lot of... I see our museum staff do similar things day in, day out. And the great thing about that is it inspires young people to take an interest in the natural world. Oh, that moment for me was absolutely transformative. Uh, I think it would be for any kid. It's just, yeah. you know, you have those moments in your life when yeah. all of a sudden you're switched onto something. Oh, isn't that fantastic? Yeah. And, look, and look where it led you. Mm-hmm. So you finished your PhD, as you said, in zoology at the University of New South Wales. And then, then what happened? Well, I was. Uh, I remember being briefly out of work. I'd had. A, I had a three-week-old baby. Um, I, I had a PhD in kangaroo evolution, and I thought I'm going to get a job for sure. You know, <laughs> lot of lot of jobs going in kangaroo evolution, right. no doubt. Tim. I remember the look on the face of the guy at the unemployment office when I turned up. It was very <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but a job had been advertised here at the Australian Museum, um, and it was the curatorship of either birds or mammals that they wished to fill. There was a, a list of candidates, obviously very, very long, and I didn't hold out great hope mm. of, of getting a job. I went for, went for the interview. I, I must have answered the questions correctly. I, I just come from the collection, actually, and I remember one of the interviewees asked me about an obscure species of rat from an island off New Guinea, and I happened to be able to give the answer because I'd just been looking at the rat in the collection. Isn't that funny? Um, and, and then yeah, I was given the job, and it was like, uh, I don't know, it was extraordinary. It was I mean, to be paid to do what I really wanted to do was just incredible. I couldn't believe it. Well, a lot of people really don't understand that the work of the museum is as much behind the scenes as it is out on the public floor. And here are these collections sitting there gathered over, literally in our case, tens of decades, 190 years next year. And the collections managers, the curators of those collections... They study them day in, day out. It's not just a matter of sort of dusting them off occasionally. There's real scientific research that goes on there. Well, that's right. And these, you can think of the collections at a museum like this as great and complicated machines that have been built up over many, many decades, in some cases centuries, of fieldwork, research and publication. And the machines are directed towards understanding the nature of our world better. 
So they're, they're machines mm. to help us investigate the world. So when I was curator of mammals, uh, I focused particularly on the Pacific Islands and uh, built on those collections. So I published on specimens that have been collected as much as a century earlier, uh, explaining uh, what sort of animal it was, what its evolutionary history was, what that tells us about, for example, the evolution of the, of the Solomon Islands. Uh, and, and so bit by bit, the picture's built up. So I, I took my job very much as being kind of a, it's a weird way to say it, but some kind of a, like a high priest of mammalogy in a way, because the trust that you have is, is handed on from generation from generation for more than a century. So it's a very sacred trust That's to look right. after that collection and publish it. And the story of the collection is written in those generations, isn't it, uh, of what was collected at that particular time. And of course, you were very uh, ambitious, I think, at the time. You went out into the Pacific regularly and into Papua New Guinea and discovered quite a few new species. Well, that's right. I did. I was fortunate. I, I was working at a time where the traditional knowledge of the people in those regions was still strong, so they knew their fauna very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the regions had opened up, and it was possible to go safely into areas where just a decade or two earlier you may have had an arrow shot at you or whatever. Um, and so I was able to go into the deep bush with the real experts, the, the, the old men and women of those cultures who know the fauna backwards. And when they talk to you about an animal, a tree canker or whatever, they're not just telling you what they know, but what their fathers told them and their grandfathers yeah. told them and the generations before told them. So the picture of knowledge that they have is immense, encyclopedic, in fact. And it really does show the importance of having that understanding between science and culture. It's where it really melds, isn't it, in these developing countries where the fauna is under threat, as it is here, of course, but these cultural traditions are preserved and how to work with the people, and really that's why you're back here right now. That's right. I think, you know, the the, the boundary between science and culture is a bit of a false one, in a way. I mean, I, as an English and history person, I, can, I think I can say mm. that. Um, so you need one to inform the other, absolutely. And and the project that I'm doing now, courtesy of your good graces, Kim, and thank you very much for having us. Oh, we, a, we're thrilled to have you back at the Australian yeah. Museum, so that's fine. It, it's really, from my personal perspective, a, an effort to give something back to those Pacific Island communities who helped me build my career. Mm. And um, it, it comes out of an opportunity that came my way over a year ago now where a European foundation asked me to invited me to apply for a grant to do some conservation work in the Pacific. And uh, I still had contacts with two community groups in the Solomon Islands that I'd worked with years earlier. And um, by revitalising those contacts, I was able to uh, develop a project where we said, well, let's try to conserve the the megafauna, the charismatic megafauna of the Solomon Islands, you know, the the giant rats and the monkey-faced bats. Now, I love saying those terms together, giant rats and monkey-faced bats, because I know in our collection here... We have two specimens of the monkey-faced bat, and they're two of only three in the world. I think the other one is at the Smithsonian, correct? That's right. I think there may be a couple of others scattered about, but they're the key ones. Right. And, uh, yeah, that, that particular monkey-faced bat you refer to, a, a student of mine discovered it was a new species and said, oh, I want to name it in honour of you. And I said, oh, what are you going to call it? He said, oh, we'll call it Flannery's monkey Face bat. And I thought, I don't know how honourable that is, but so, I'll so accept it anyway. So in the Latin name, how do you say it's it? It's Terralopex flannerii. 
Terra Lopex Flannery. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I think that's the great honour of having a species like that named after you, Tim. But this expedition currently is just remarkable because we're working so closely with the local community there. We are, and I think it's it's very true in this day and age that if you want to conduct meaningful conservation in places like the Pacific Islands, you have to deliver tangible benefits to the communities. And this is what this project is all about. And I think those tangible benefits, it's not money per se. The benefit to this community is for them to help conserve their biodiversity and cultural tradition. That's absolutely right. That is a big part of it. But we also want to deliver some some tangible benefits to them. For example, in education. You know, one of the communities we're working with is on Bougainville, where the Civil War destroyed the education system. So there's a whole generation of people who've missed out on education. Mm. They don't really understand as well as they should the, 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 the need to send their children through school because that was all got destroyed by the war. So we're trying to, in that case, to build and support a school in the community in exchange for that community setting aside a region of Bougainville as a protected biodiversity area. So that's one part of a complex equation, but that's the sort of thing we're trying to do. It's terrific. And the particular community you're working with up in the Solomon Highlands, and Australians really don't understand the Solomons, but there is still this community there. Um, there's about 3,500 people who still speak the traditional language and have not converted to Christianity, and they still practice their traditional cultural worshipping and um, a whole means of how they live their lives in the traditional way. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, that's absolutely true, Kim. And in fact, in the museum here today, we have several elders from that community who don't speak English, barely speak pidgin. One um, one of those elders had never left her village area before. So she's come to Sydney as part of this thing. And, and last night, uh, that community group put on the most extraordinary performance of their traditional dance and song mm. uh, for the Museum Foundation that was... An absolute once-in-a-lifetime thing. We won't see that again because this group is... They're not professional performers. These are village people, and this is the culture they live. And it's such a rare thing in the in the Pacific. In fact, I was talking to the curator of um, anthropology because the group visited the anthropology section, and she was saying it was the first time in her life she opened a drawer and showed ethnographic objects, combs and bags and things, and the people were able to demonstrate they were part of a still-living culture. So... She showed the combs, a man got a comb out of his hair and said, it's like this one. She showed the bags and the woman got a bag of her back and said, that's just like my bag. So the bag, a century old in the museum collection, same kind of bag still being made up in the highlands of Malaita. Oh, it really is amazing to have these people here at the museum. And uh, in fact, I know they're going to perform for the public as well in the next day or so, which is just really remarkable. They are an extraordinary group of people, so kind and generous as well and so I think the more that the Australian Museum can help people in Australia understand the region we live in the better that is and through this project and others I hope we can do with you we'll achieve that in the future. Tim Flannery it's been so good to have you back at the museum Come back often, won't you? I certainly would. It's my second home, Kim. It's going to be hard to get rid of me. I know. Thank you very much. I think your DNA is probably on some of those desks you used to sit at. Did you ever carve your initials in the desk? I was tempted. I don't think I'd carve my initials, but my DNA is probably in there somewhere. Thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.